Hello and welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast, episode 82. I'm Tian Nduyeb and this week, like Zimbabwean dictator and love child of Yoda and Nicki Minaj's wardrobe, Robert Mugabe, I too am ignoring a deadline despite all opposition, which is why this week's podcast is not really finished. And that's the end of this week's podcast. Thanks for listening. Ha! I joke. As of last Wednesday, the Zimbabwean military put Robert Total Jobsworth Mugabe under house arrest, something that I thought was a good move until I saw pictures of his massive house and then became slightly jealous. This happened because of Robert's attempts to ensure his wife would succeed him after his nearly four undemocratic decades in power. Because, hey, there's no more romantic gift to pass to a loved one like a country that hates you and is in terrible economic decline. I'm sure that that comes after Diamond Anniversary, right? Now, his own party, ZANU-PF, set him a deadline to resign by and he's completely ignored it, not even pretending to ask for a few more hours because the internet went down. Throwing the country into financial turmoil, inflicting violence on many and once ignoring an election loss by saying only God could remove him from office, it does feel that now he's 93, people might really want to question their faith as God is properly taking the piss out of the Zimbabwe people on this one. Now, thousands of protesters and his own party are calling for his impeachment, an idea that many in the US are saying, oh man, I wish we could do that. It feels like it could be a new era for Zimbabwe if Mugabe relinquishes power, and hopefully for many Zimbabwean citizens, he'll have gone by the time you hear this show. But considering his reluctance so far, it may take far more forceful methods before his presidency is Mugabe not to be. Yeah, I'm ending this bit on that joke. Yes, that is what you're getting. Meanwhile, in the UK, Brexit secretary and man who looks like he could be erased with one swipe of a D-bubbler, David Davis, made a speech in Berlin where he warned the EU against putting politics above prosperity. Yes, really. I honestly don't know why I bother. (laughs) Sorry, it's just... Yeah. So, after Davis's comments proved he's the sort of man who'd have a stone-throwing party inside a glass house, he told the BBC that the UK had been offering some creative compromises on the Brexit negotiations, but they had not always got them back, insisting that nothing comes for nothing, which leaves many to query why on earth he gets paid a salary. I think the key part of that statement was creative compromises, as there's nothing more creative than pretending something is there when it absolutely isn't. EU chief negotiator Michel Barnier, a man who looks like he'd host the French version of Mastermind if he wasn't so constantly stuck with one guest who never has the answers to anything, Barnier has said that it's up to the UK to come up with a post-Brexit solution to the Irish border issue. Not so much a, you've made your bed, now lie in it, but more, you've repeatedly shat in the same bed, it's high time you slept in it, waking up every day, smelling that distinct whiff of a lack of foresight. He also stated again for the umpteenth time that trade talks will not happen until accounts are settled, a.k.a. the Brexit bill paid. This is a comment that's already caused Conservative MP and what happens when DNA goes on strike, Nigel Evans, to tell the government that the UK cannot afford to play Santa Claus to EU bosses. Something that ignores just how many toy exports that would mean we get and a boost to the British toy making industry, as well as cheap, environmentally friendly, reindeer-based travel and most of the year off on holiday. Evans also seems to forget that Father Christmas doesn't just go round giving gifts to fulfil contracts he's already signed because we all know kids are really shit at small print. 
Next on the Conservatives Say the Stupidest Things is Chancellor and World's Saddest Hat Stand, Philip Hammond, who's about to unveil the autumn budget, which is so called because what better time to announce the fall of the economy? On BBC's The Mar Show, when asked about the threat of technology on UK's jobs market, Hammond announced that there are no unemployed people in Britain. Sure, Phil. I mean, apart from the 1.42 million unemployed people in the UK, which doesn't count self-employed or zero-hours contract people who aren't getting any work, or people on Sure Start or Workfare or apprenticeship schemes that aren't getting paid, then I guess there are no unemployed people, right? I mean, it is amazing that a man who is in charge of setting the country's budget has confused the number 1.42 million with the number zero, although this could explain the government's constantly lack approach on tax avoidance. I wonder if Hammond has justified this comment by telling himself there are no unemployed people, just employ mentally challenged ones instead. Hammond's budget is expected to include an expansion of driverless cars, some that many have joked is an apt expression of our government already, which I'd agree, only more so in the way that we have an automaton leader who has a route programmed and is determined to get us there regardless of obstacles. Hammond was questioned about the safety of the cars after professional bastard Jeremy Clarkson said that he nearly died in one, making me think they're definitely a great idea. But Hammond said driverless cars are safe and there would still be work as many years ago people were worried about job losses when computers replaced typewriters and everything turned out to be fine. Yeah, but you idiot, people still have to type on computers and that is the massive difference. The rest of the budget is expected to target housing and the NHS, two things that I'm pretty sure are only currently fucked because the government have been targeting them for years already. Lastly, as Scottish Labour elected their new leader, Richard Leonard, a man who looks like he constantly has someone blowing a hairdryer in his face, former Scots Labour leader and political chocolate teapot Kezia Dugdale has entered the jungle as part of television's I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here, despite years ago condemning a Conservative MP for doing exactly the same thing. Nadine Doris, a.k.a. a politician who admittedly should be only on television as the answer to every single question on Pointless. Dugdale was not given permission by Scottish Labour to do I'm a Celebrity, but they say they haven't been persuaded to suspend her as a result, probably because she'll no doubt end up getting suspended above something as part of the programme anyway. Kezia has deleted her pledge from the Registry of Members' Interests, which was to donate any and all money earned from outside interests to charity. So while that's been deleted, she has said she'll give a portion of her TV fee to charity instead, though I'd argue that having followed Jim Murphy's Scottish Labour leadership, she'd already spent quite some time being pretty well paid to do a series of challenging tests. I find the idea of politicians being on reality TV shows hugely depressing, but on the other hand, I'd definitely watch Parliament.tv a whole lot more if Scorpions were involved. Kezia joined Stanley Johnson on the show, a.k.a. father of Foreign Secretary and walking concussion Boris Johnson. I'm already amazed that at the last minute Michael Gove's dad didn't push in front and say that he'd do the show instead. Although, let's be fair, it's far more likely that Stanley's son will accidentally tell authorities that he's in the jungle to teach journalists and he'll end up stuck there for five years more than intended. Oh, and in Ireland, Gerry Adams is standing down as the leader of Sinn Féin in order to spend more time with his real voice. Hello you! How do you feel about politicians doing reality TV shows? Does it bother you as much as it bothers me? I mean, if they're now counted as celebrities, then I would far rather watch other members of the civil service on these shows. I mean, for example, how about shoving Jeremy Hunt in the jungle with just a large number of NHS staff? Something like that. It'd be brilliant. 
Anyway, it is something I do feel uncomfortable about, although reality TV is depressing to me anyway, as the last thing I want to watch for enjoyment is yet more reality. But look, I'll stop rambling. Thank you all for listening to the show, as always. And if you're a new listener, then thank you very much for getting on board. And several of you sent me very lovely comments after last week's chat with James Patrick, which I'm so glad you enjoyed slash were equally terrified by. And did you notice, just hours after we recorded that interview, Theresa May gave a warning about the dangers of Russian interference in elections, uh, which means she was probably listening into our conversation. Of course, she didn't mention bots because she can't turn against her own species, but it was nice to know that for once this podcast was ahead of the news. I am such a child, but I still find the term Russian bots quite funny. Like, I have a Russian bot, and that's why I call my toilet a Putin. <laughs> I'm 36. <laughs> it was formerly a USSR. It's okay, I, I, will, I will stop now. <laughs> um, thank you to all the new reviews on iTunes, which is amazing of you all, and please do keep adding to those. It really does help get more listeners to the show. Um, thanks also this week to Andrew, who very kindly donated to both the Kofi and Patreon pages, making him a total and utter hero. And if you too would like to gain instant hero status, which is what Andrew has just done, then please do donate towards this podcast at either ko-fi.com forward slash bro for a one-off donation or patreon.com forward slash bro for a monthly one, which is hugely helpful. And I know you're probably thinking, Tin, and where does this money go if we donate it? The podcast is free. Do you just pocket it so that you can while your evenings away throwing pound coins at urban foxes? Well, yes, I do, but... Also, last week, I needed a new podcast mic, so that was £30, which I paid for with your kind donations. And more importantly than that, um, I had to turn down a very kind offer this past weekend from the Zimbabwe Vigil Group to join them on their Saturday protest outside the Zimbabwean embassy, which they've been doing every single Saturday for the last um, 15 years now uh, in protest of the Mugabe government. Um, And they said I could come along and I could interview and chat to them for the podcast. And I had to say no because I had comedy shows that I had to do to, well, pay bills and survive instead. Now, I'm by no means asking any of you to pay my bills, but the more you donate to this podcast, the more I'm able to justify taking time out to do this show. Uh, The past week involved chasing 18 different interviewees until I got one that actually responded and could do it, and that was like a day's work in itself. So please do donate, or alternatively, maybe just hunt down guests for me and then threaten to throw pound coins at them until they speak to me. Um, You know, now all the pound coins have all those extra edges. They are pretty dangerous, and hence very useful against foxes. Um, Now, that is the sort of all the admin for this week, but I did have an email that I wanted to read out. So, it is time for the return of... You send it in, I read it out. That's what post-truth is all about. Except it's not actually what post-truth's about. But that's what this section called post-truth is about. You send in letters, then I read them out. So I called it post-truth, do you see what I did there? Post-truth. La 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 la. So I love getting emails uh, from you all on the very rare occasion that it happens. And this week I had a very nice email from uh, someone called Ewan that I would like to read on the podcast. And I hope that is OK with him, as I thought I could give it a better reply on here than the feeble one that I sent back to him. Um, so it reads and I mean, I'm reading it. It's not reading itself. That would be really weird. Uh, so the email reads. I'm, I'm re- Oh, God. Anyway, look. Hi, Tiernan. I think you really shouldn't continue to use your podcast as your own echo chamber. It's not good for yourself, your listeners or society. Interview someone with whom you disagree about a subject on which you disagree. This will make your podcast far more interesting as it could actually start a debate. Keep up the good work. 
Thanks, Ewan. Uh, that's the email from Ewan there. And I will definitely try to do that, uh, keep up the good work that is. And I do very much appreciate the email. Um, in terms of using the podcast as an echo chamber, uh, well, firstly, um, I've realised that, and I should say that I talked about this a lot in my last stand-up show, which we filmed this weekend. Thank you, everyone that came. Um, I've really stopped being worried about enjoying my echo chamber. Um, for years and years, people were like, get out of your echo chamber. And I, I did, lots. And I've realised that mine is pretty great. Uh, it's filled with a lot of my favourite stuff and after spending time really delving into other people's opinions uh, for a good chunk of time I've realised why I don't listen to a lot of them and it's because they are shit and quite often racist Um, now look I am slightly kidding uh, in that for this show I do read across all varieties of papers and news sites um, except never the mail or sun or Breitbart because if I wanted that sort of news on this podcast I'd only write it each week after banging my head against a wall repeatedly for 30 minutes Um, but I do think hearing both sides or um, both sides of an argument argument uh, quite a lot of the time is very very important and I do entirely agree with Ewan's comments about having different voices on this show but here is the snag I have tried a few times and the few uh, sort of more right-wing people uh, for example that I've tried to interview they're generally put off by me being a comedian even though I insist the interviews are serious and by the fact that it's a free podcast with a very obviously sort of uh, left-wing biased voice now I'm not a debater he he and while I've never set out to give the show a proper modus operandi one of the things I did want with partly political uh, was to allow people to talk for longer than the news normally allows without the sort of tedious arguing that you get on question time a show that you could easily replace with just footage of a dog barking while a man kicks a dustbin for an hour um, and practically as well a lot of my interviews are over skype and as you'll hear with this week's there's often a delay on the line or something like that which actually makes debating a lot harder to do without it sounding like a garbled mess for you the listener no not you no no the one behind you yes you the listener but look How many more of you feel this show needs more diverse voices and perhaps more voices that I don't agree with? And bearing in mind, sometimes, like this week, I have a voice on that's telling me stuff I didn't even know, so I don't know how to agree with it in the first place. Um, But please let me know. And more importantly, as I ask every single week on this show, um, if you want voices that I don't agree with, please let me know who I should contact. And I will try my very best to get in touch with them, although I can't guarantee that they will want to speak to me. But the more listeners this show gets, the more people trust it, the more likely it is that, you know, hey, I might have Theresa May on in a few weeks and I can ask her really pressing uh, questions such as how long it takes for her to charge overnight or perhaps which operating system she runs on. And if you have anything you want to tell me about the show as well, um, anything really at all, uh, then please do email into partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com I do genuinely love your opinions uh, and emails like that from you and I'll take it all on board in order to make this thing better for you to hear with your ear holes. Now, On this week's show, there is no budget stuff as that is going to be on next week's uh, due to idiot me deciding this podcast should come out on a Tuesday rather than, say, a Friday. But what it does have is an interview with Oliver Slow from Frontier Myanmar on the horrific situation with the Rohingya people there. And also, I'm going to be looking a wee bit at Zimbabwe or a small bit at Zimbabwe Small. No, wait, that doesn't work. But first, no headlines this week as we got to go straight to... Brexit At a government cabinet meeting today, they decided that they will increase the UK's offer to the EU for a so-called Brexit bill. They haven't mentioned a figure yet and said that it would only be in return for the EU moving in December to discuss trade deals, something that the EU said they won't discuss until the UK comes up with a settlement deal. So while this might seem like progress somehow, I can't help but feel that this is more stalemate to the extent that all your friends are a bit chewy but okay for toasting. 
Rumours suggest that the divorce bill amount could now, after this decision, amount to be £40 billion. Yeah, John Cleese must finally feel like he's got a good deal, right? So that is at £40 billion over £1,000 per taxpayer in the UK. And I must say, I don't know about you, but I feel like that is £1,000 well spent. Because look at everything we have gained from it. Uh, for example, we've got... Um, and we've got... No. Uh, no, nope. nope, still... No. Nope. Really still no idea. Hey, still though, it does mean that Brexiteers are going to lose their shit, that it's double the original £20 billion the government mentioned that was based on no real figures, and Remainers are going to lose their shit that we're all paying a lot of money to have a shit time doing something none of them wanted to do, a bit like every single office Christmas party that's ever happened, so if nothing else, it's uniting everyone together in being angry. The EU withdrawal bill debates happened in Parliament last week and so far the government have seen off all challenges with votes going in their favour, even for rulings that under repealed EU law in the UK, animals will now no longer be seen as feeling pain or emotion, which is hugely backwards news for animal rights and makes the Monty Python dead parrot sketch now not funny but just dark and sad. Though, if the Conservatives realise that as humans they are animals too, this decision could make sense judging by their usual numbness. Tory rebels and Labour have hinted at blocking aspects at later votes, but right-wing paper The Telegraph printed a big front-page picture of what it called the Brexit mutineers, i.e. those Tory rebels who will vote against May's move to enshrine our leaving date in law. Yeah, I mean, I don't know about you, but nothing excites me more about this sovereign nation that we're chasing than the bit where everyone who expresses a view that isn't 100% kosher with the top dogs gets chased down and threatened. I'm starting to wonder if Britannia only had a lion for self-defence from people who are scared of independent thought. In other headline news, headline news, The Sun, a.k.a. cheaper than buying fire lighters, accused Irish Taoiseach Leo Vradica of being naive and young and said that he should shut his gob on views that Ireland and the EU should set out their own non-negotiable red lines about a border between them and Northern Ireland. Now, admittedly, compared to the main Sun readership, Vradica is probably quite young, being less than 80 years old. But really, these comments from The Sun are no more helpful to making Brexit happen than, say, well, The Sun is in doing anything other than providing decent for unloved hamsters. Meanwhile, Michelle Barnier has said that financial services in the UK will lose their passporting rights after Brexit. So what does that mean? And surely it doesn't matter if they now have classic blue passporting anyway, right? No, it means they can only trade to banks within the EU if they set up subsidiaries within it and apply for local licences allowing them to trade. So that's around 5,500 firms, around £20 billion of services and about 1 million jobs that are all probably going to have to go. Hey, no biggie, right? I mean, it's not like we even need banks and financial services after Brexit anyway, as we're all going to be staying in Britain, trading classic British goods with each other, like, say, potatoes with, um, more potatoes. Anyway, meanwhile, the Home Office has said that it's struggling to recruit staff to register EU nationals and deal with immigration in the UK, and that they may have to recruit staff from, get this, that's right, Europe. I honestly don't even know why I bother anymore. Ah! Oh, and this week... Can you guess who this week is it that's leaving the UK because of Brexit? Because of Brexit! That's right, it's the European Medicines Agency who are leaving from London to go to Amsterdam, which means 900 jobs, plus all the economic work and investment it brings, uh, that are completely now done for. And that is going to hurt, especially as they're the ones who would have worked out what to use to numb the pain a bit in the first place. 
Also, Aston Martin, who they have said that Brexit may cause them to halt production entirely, which is pretty bad for them and all the people that work for them. But I have to say, I really love the idea that in the next James Bond film, we just get to see him driving around in a jar of innovative jam. Now, I'm not saying that we in the UK have recently been complaining about being a divided country a little bit too much. But not only have Myanmar asked us to hold their beer, but really, if anyone was going to write a book about internal conflicts, then Myanmar, aka Burma, depending on who's asking, they'd already be competing with George R.R. R. Martin for longest never-ending violence saga. The various ethnic groups that make up the country have now been involved in one of the world's longest-running civil wars, dating back to 1948, since it was granted independence from British rule. And while the UK's current politics would suggest that generally escaping the Commonwealth was pretty much a smart move, for Myanmar it led them into years of military dictatorship full of terrible human rights violations and only mostly coming to an end in 2011 after UN intervention and a normal democratic election in 2010 that led to civilian government and the release of Aung San Suu Kyi, a political prisoner, campaign for democracy in Myanmar and winner of the Nobel Peace Prize, which damn, makes my CV look really shit in comparison, even if I do win a local poetry competition aged eight and god damn my poem was good sushi became myanmar's de facto leader in 2015 and it all kind of looked like burma could become a place that was less known for ethnic conflict and instead for its other well-known draws like um opium hmm but look really it was picking up until this year, where now Myanmar is being accused by the United Nations of ethnic cleansing after over 600,000 Rohingya people have been driven out of the country into Bangladesh, with reports of thousands more being slaughtered and abused by the military and their villages burned. Aung San Suu Kyi hasn't even attempted to intervene, and only today she told the UN that a lot of the world's problems are to do with illegal immigration, and she said that as people from her own country are being forced to seek refuge elsewhere due to violence. I honestly don't know why I bother anymore! Ah! But why has this happened? Can other countries intervene? Can I make it through this whole very serious, horrendous topic without childishly saying, Myanmar? No, you and Ma. No, no, I can't. But rather than me tell you all about it, you know, a man who's still unsure exactly where Myanmar is on the map, I spoke to Oliver Slow, Chief of Staff at Frontier Myanmar, an independent political magazine in Myanmar. Oliver very kindly spoke to me despite the difficulties in arranging an interview with the time difference of six and a half hours. Yes, there is a half an hour in there just to make everything harder. It's so unnecessary. Um, and Oliver gave me a clear and informative overview as to where everything is now and how it got there in the first place. And I should say that we spoke before uh, Suchi's really stupid comments today. And also there was quite a delay on the line, which I've edited out where I can. But it does mean actually that this interview is just considerably shorter than I thought it was because I removed a lot of spare delay time from it. It was about 10 minutes longer <laughs> before I started. Um, I should also say that I didn't ask Oliver about the gory details of all of this because um, if you want to read about that, you can. There is enough coverage of it everywhere and it's all really horrifically upsetting as to what's happening to the Rohingya now. Um, it's just a truly awful, horrible situation. But I felt that it'd be more useful for this show to get an explanation of what and why this is happening. So hopefully you'll find this chat with Oliver as useful as I have in understanding the situation. Here's Oliver. The first question, I think, for uh, for myself and the listeners, really, is what what is happening in Myanmar at the moment? Why are the, the military attacking the Rohingya people? Um, how did this start? What's the kind of history of this? 
Yeah, so the, the latest round of violence with regards to what's happening in Rakhine was in August uh, 25. Uh, but I think if you to understand it a bit better, it's best to go back really sort of as far as 2012. Uh, the Rohingya people have been fleeing Myanmar really for sort of the last 20 years or so. Uh, but the biggest incident occurred sort of shortly, only a year or so after the reforms began uh, in 2012, when there was an outbreak of violence between the, the Rohingya Muslims and the uh, Buddhist Rakhine. There's a couple of incidents sort of around Sitwe, which is the state capital out there in Rakhine, which led to huge violence over a sort of matter of about six, six months or so. And essentially what happened was the Muslim population there, almost across the whole of Rakhine state, um, were, were take, moved out of the town, ostensibly for their own security, moved into these camps where, um, where they essentially they all remain. Um, that remained the case for uh, about four years. Um, there was there were kind of occasional incidents here and there, but there was no real flare-up of of uh, any tension. And then that changed in October last year, 2016, in in the north of the state. And the, the north of the state's a bit different to the rest because it's that's actually Muslim majority. Northern Rakhine State has about no, at least before the latest round of um, what happened in the last few months, it was about 90% Muslim compared to 10% Buddhist. And, uh, and that's essentially right on the border of Bangladesh. And there was a group there that, that kind of announced its arrival. They're called the Arakan Rohingya Salvation Army. They were initially called Al Yakin. And they launched some attacks on some police outposts up there. They killed a handful of police officers. And the military responded um, with a very heavy-handed crackdown. They were accused of using disproportionate force. Of, they were accused of rape. They were accused of uh, extrajudicial killings, arson. They, of course, denied it. Uh, and the scale at that point was much smaller. Um, there were a few incidents going on. This group, Arsa, did, you know, they did, they were, have been, it's been shown that they have been killing villages up there as well. Um, and then on August 25, um, it was a surprise, surprise of everyone, they launched much bigger attacks, according to at least the government. Um, they, they launched attacks on about 30 police outposts. Um, and this led to this huge crackdown. This is what led to this exodus that we're seeing about. And in the first sort of 10 days, we saw more about 300, 400,000 people, pretty much all Rohingya, flee over that border um, into into Bangladesh. And now you look at the number, we're about three months after that incident now, um, and we're up to 600,000. And there is expected that potentially this could keep climbing, keep climbing, because those communities in Northern Rakhine really, they don't have access to, there's no, hardly any food is going in there. There's tension. There are some Buddhists up in that area too, and there's a lot of tension between those communities. Um, so really, this is as bad as it's been um, essentially ever up there in Northern Rakhine. There's, there's real desperation, there's real tension, and it's difficult to really see a positive path going forward. Because one of the, the things I've uh, been reading recently is, um, I think it was the, the US, um, uh, Rex Tennyson said the, the other day, you know, that they, they need more evidence that this is ethnic cleansing. But as you said, it's 600,000 Rohingya now that have fled to, to Bangladesh and all these reports of widespread rape and genocide. Surely, what, what more evidence do they need that this is ethnic cleansing? I mean, it's difficult really to know what else they need. As you say, what they need. Um, I, I visited the camps in September. Uh, you go there, it really is. It's, it's uh, desperation beyond anything you've ever seen. Almost everyone you speak to has a story about um, the military attacking villages, killing villages. Um, of course, I should clarify that the military has denied that this happened. Um, it's difficult to know what exactly they're waiting for for more evidence. I mean, the one thing that is true is that journalists like myself, like colleagues of mine, cannot go in and, and monitors, you know, United Nations monitor groups, aid organizations cannot get into Northern Rakhine. 
So I guess there's this argument that if you can't go into Northern Rakhine, because it's been restricted by the government and the military up there, if you cannot go into the area, perhaps there's this argument that, um, that you know, it cannot be entirely proven. Um, but, you know, as, as you mentioned, on the other side of the world. It's difficult to know what much what more evidence anyone needs. I mean, that's yes. Yeah, it sounds like it's just sort of uh, kind of gaslighting from the government. If you can't see it, then it's not happening. Essentially, yeah, they've, they've denied. They, they came out with a report. The Tatmadaw, the, the military here, they came out with their own report on Monday uh, that said that basically their their armed forces committed no wrongdoings in their crackdown. That's been dismissed by almost anyone who's read it because at the end of the day, you have a team, a, a group investigating, you know, a group accused of these crimes investigating themselves um, and that's hardly credible and hardly um, something that can be trusted and believed in so what what everyone's calling for is a truly independent investigation um, the UN the United Nations uh, back in earlier this year voted for a fact-finding mission to come into the country and investigate the human rights situation not only in Rakhine but in other parts of the country but with this focus on Rakhine and the government has rejected that. They said they won't give any visas to those members. So there's a lot of calls. Rex Tillerson, when he was here the other day, continued the calls for these investigations to take place. Uh, unfortunately, at this point, the military and the government don't appear willing to let that happen. And I mean, is there because, you know, a lot of the Rohingya have now fled over to Bangladesh. Are there still Rohingya in Myanmar? Are there still people that are at threat um, from the military? Yeah, there's an estimated, so there's about 100,000 in the camps. So as I mentioned earlier, there's sort of northern Rakhine and central Rakhine. In central Rakhine, there are around about 100,000 Rohingya who are still in these camps. Um, they're kind of secluded from away from other communities. Um, they, they're getting some food deliveries, I understand it, but some of that's been restricted. And then in northern Rakhine, you have around about half a million Rohingya, maybe less now who are some of them trying to make their way to Bangladesh, often sitting on the other side of that. There's, a, there's a, the Naf River there that sits on, as acts as the border between the two countries. And there are, if you listen, uh, people say, uh, maybe potentially thousands sort of ho hoping to get across, but it's a big wide river. Many can't afford the boat journey to go over. And in other parts of that northern Rakhine area, there's many more who are apparently caught up in these communities. Um, we don't know exactly what the situation is up there, as I mentioned, because of lack of access. But... There are certainly more some Rohingya still in the country, still concerned about the future, um, and there are also some Rakhine up there living living side by side. Um, generally, these communities now don't really interact. So you'll have Muslim villages and then a few Rakhine villages, and and they will generally keep apart from each other at the moment. Such as the level of distrust. And and I assume as well, this has caused a, a refugee crisis in Bangladesh with that many kind of displaced people now crossing the border over there. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it's um, it, Bangladesh is struggling to cope. The humanitarian actors are struggling to cope. Um, as I say, when I you know when I was over there, I've spoken with people who have covered humanitarian crises in Haiti, in Philippines, um, the world over, and many you speak to are just like I have never seen anything on the scale of this. Everywhere when you go down to those camps. Uh, it's a little sort of slither of land south of Cox's Bazaar in southern Bangladesh. You know, Bangladesh is already a very poor country. So, yeah, when you when you sort of go down to these camps, you, uh, you you go through a military checkpoint, and almost as soon as you go through there, you see the scale of how many people. And, and as far as you can see are people everywhere, kind of um, running around, looking for food, waiting for food, um, carrying bamboo poles and, and things like that. And then and then these these little huts as far as you can see, are, are sprouted up. They've, they've cleared forest land. There's just people packed into this area. And it's just not a sustainable way. I mean, it, that many people overnight, 
it, I, I, you know, it, it, it really is difficult to see what's going to happen going forward. I mean, so I mean, what I'm, what I'm gathering from this because you said that obviously the, the UN, uh, uh, or you know, there's calls for an independent investigation, um, but there are people that are immediately in need of help. So does this? I, I know there are aid groups that are attempting to help, but does, doesn't this require some sort of immediate foreign intervention of a much more drastic kind to get this really sorted out? Yeah, uh, it's difficult. I mean, within look, just looking from the humanitarian side of things, the the, the agencies that are working down there, um, your you know MSF, your UN agencies, and there's some, there's some organisations that are doing the very best they can. And and on the scale, they, you know, they just they need more resources. They need more money to go in. Um, with regards to to actually resolve the solution inside the country, um, you know, the UN, EU are talking about targeting sanctions against the military. The UK, the US are talking about these same things. But it's down to they have to convince the Myanmar military and the Myanmar government to to really deal with this issue inside the country. And, and from what we've seen so far, there's very little evidence of political will from the Myanmar side. They see these people as um, illegal immigrants from Bangladesh, that they don't belong in the country. And that's the way it's viewed by a lot of the population, as well as the government and the military. And we'll be back with Oliver in a minute. But first... Global broadcast. I don't know if you've heard of the globe, uh, but there are a lot of places on it. I know, right? Like even more than four or five countries. It might even be double digits, apparently. And there are a number of important or interesting political stories around the world right now that deserve time spent on them, such as the Saudi Arabian prince who's power grabbing more than someone playing catch with a car battery, or how Germany's failing coalition talks, meaning they may have to have re-elections, or how in the US Trump is still just being a massive bellend, with the White House official statement saying that they were investigating allegations into Senator Al Franken's sex offences, but not President Trump's because, hey, Franken admitted it and Trump hasn't. Yeah, great way of deciding whether things should be investigated, guys. Wonder if they're going to use that for murder cases. Well, he's covered in their blood head to toe and wielding the murder weapon, but he said he's innocent, so back to square one, boys. I mean, the only time Trump is ever a man of his word is when he said his word is fake news. And yes, we're all aware that that's two words, which is very much part of it. But look, this week, let's turn our eyes, or more appropriately, our ears on this podcast, to Zimbabwe, a place that, like Myanmar, I find very difficult to not make a joke about Zimbab me, Zimbab you, Zimbabwe, because when you're writing this show every week, uh, you can become quite unoriginal. This past week, the Zimbabwean army placed the president, Robert Mugabe, under house arrest, and they took control of state TV in an event that they denied was a coup, but unless it was just a really defiant protest against repeats, no one's sure what else it could be. And the reason for this non-coup coup or un-coup was that Mugabe had sacked his vice president Emerson Mnangagwa, which many believe, including Mugabe's party ZANU-PF, that he did to make sure his wife Grace could usurp power and take control of the country once old Robbie retires or dies. This led to his party giving him a deadline to resign by, which he didn't, and now they've called for his impeachment, and by the time you hear this podcast, he could already be more impeached than James. Now, before you go thinking, oh, how could they get rid of him when he's all just being sweet and caring for his bae wife and shit? Let's do a rewind selector into just who Robert Mugabe is and exactly what he's done as leader of Zimbabwe for the last 37 years. Yes, 37 years. And here's a proper news crunch, so don't be coming all at me about details I may have missed. I'm doing this like a brain burst and you can all do the proper research into final details of names and what colours his jackets were all on your own time. So look. Robert Mugabe started as a political revolutionary. I mean, he didn't start like that. He was a baby first, but I'm fast forwarding because I haven't got all day. 
He fought against the white minority rule of Southern Rhodesia, the name Zimbabwe had under British colonial rule. And once again, you might want to add that to countries that really didn't benefit from us turning up and nicking all their stuff. Mugabe was imprisoned for 10 years for insurrection against the government and on release fled to Mozambique and became leader of ZANU, the Zimbabwean African National Union, and supervised them in the Rhodesian Bush War, an event that led to the dismantling of the white minority government. Then there was a general election in 1980 and after surviving two assassination attempts, Mugabe became prime minister of the renamed Zimbabwe. And while his government sought foreign investment, he expanded education so that Zimbabwe, by the year 2000, had one of the best adult literacy rates in Africa and expanded healthcare as well. And he tried to reclaim land from white farm owners to give back to Zimbabweans. Now, by this point, you're probably thinking, do you know what? He sounds OK. I don't know what the fuss is about. Stick a hand Zimmer on that and you've got the rousing story of a guy who fought off white oppressors to get his people independence with great roles for David Oyelowo and Martin Freeman as the baddie. Add to all that the odd quips that he's known for saying, such as he who swallows a complete coconut has absolute trust in his anus, or a brave man is he who has a running stomach and still wants to flatulate. I mean, if that isn't an Oscar-winning film, I don't know what is. What do you mean it won't have enough white people in it to win an Oscar? Except, at the same time as all this was happening, due to all the spending and population growth in Zimbabwe, the country was running at a regular budget deficit and, and incomes declined, causing many people to live in poverty. Meanwhile, many of the leaders in government had stacks and stacks of cash and a lot of land and were allowed by Mugabe to expand their businesses and become super rich at the expense of the people. And as you can guess, they were starting to get a little bit suspicious about him. Resentment from the white politicians meant white militants attacked the ZANU-PF headquarters, which resulted in retaliation from ZANU-PF members and white farmers being killed under the supposition that they were South African agents. Meanwhile, tensions began to grow between ZANU-PF and the Zimbabwean African People's Union, the other main black political party. Joshua Nakomo, leader of ZAPU and Minister of Home Affairs, demanded more seats in Parliament for his party than the former Garbi had given them. And ZANU-PF members started to demand that actually they should be a one-party state and for ZAPU to have no seats, and then their comments called street right caused street riots between the supporters of both. So Mugabe demoted Nakomu, and as a result, things got heavy, and long story short, anyone that was a Zapu supporter was considered a dissenter, and they were tortured, beaten and killed while all their land and assets were seized. In areas such as Matobeled South, Mugabe ordered for all stores and deliveries to be stopped, despite them already being victims to a third year of drought. And this was all known as the Gukurahundi, or wind that sweeps the chaff before the rains. Yeah, quite poetic for an ultimately horrible series of events. I'm amazed more places don't think of doing that. I mean, the UK should really get Carol Ann Duffy to rename Brexit and it'll probably all seem OK. Anyway, over four years, between 81 and 85, human rights group Genocide Watch estimated around 20,000 civilians had been killed, all because, as Mugabe thought, they were in the way of his revolution. Yeah, you see, that Zimmer soundtrack just screeched to a halt, right? Oh wait, you're thinking though, some other countries must have intervened and sorted this all out, and that's why Mugabe's still in power, because he was obviously alright. Well, no, because in the UK, Margaret Thatcher kept silent for the safety of the few white Zimbabweans, and Ronald Reagan invited Mugabe over for tea at the White House, because when he said, we do not negotiate with terrorists, he forgot to add that they were 100% cool to have cake with dictators though. 
Following that, and let's speed through a little bit, there was the time Mugabe made the role of president to kind of be all-powerful, and then his party made him president. Then there was more economic problems, while lots of money was sent to Zimbabwe from several other countries for settling black people without land onto unproductive or state-owned land, and then none of that money went to any of those people and instead ended up in the hands of several government officials who kept getting wealthier. Then there's the one where Mugabe does all the homophobia. Then there's the one where Rubber ordered his troops to fight in the mega-dodge Second Congo War, or the one where he got all these journalists tortured and none of them were even from the Daily Mail, so it's definitely not okay. And then there's the blaming everything bad that's happened in Zimbabwe and Western countries, which was kind of only correct to a point, like the Zimbabwean excuse equivalent of, hey, the last Labour government. Then there's the more corruption. Then there's the backing of young militants killing white farm owners. Then there's the elections that he lost but refused to stand down, meaning that Zimbabwe is in no way the democracy that he originally supposedly fought for, and it hasn't been in a long time. And all in all, by the end of nearly 40 years, in charge, you gotta think, yeah, I preferred his much earlier stuff. So now, as many have protested for years, it is time for Mugabe to go. And really, after being in the same job for 37 years, I'm amazed he wants to stay. I mean, I worked at Camden Council for a year and a half, and I was like, wow, this is too long to be in one place. 37 years, fuck me. ZANU-PF will pass the motion for Mugabe's impeachment on Tuesday, and he could be gone in a matter of days. But what next for Zimbabwe? Well, it's thought that Emerson Manangagwa, the vice president he sacked, will take over as president in his place. And while Mugabe's impeachment is wanted, Emerson is from the same party and has been at Mugabe's side for many, many years, having the role as the country's spymaster during the massacres in the early 80s. He's also been accused of masterminding attacks on opposition supporters as recently as 2008. And his nickname is The Crocodile, and it's not because he'll see you in a while or particularly love snap. So, will he provide Zimbabweans with the democracy they need? Probably not. And either way, Mugabe's got to go first, which he is trying to do everything to stop. But as he once said, the only warning Africans take seriously is low battery. And his has now run out, and I really doubt anyone is prepared to lend him a charger anymore. And now, back to Oliver. And is that something that's that that's something you said uh, much earlier that kind of dates back quite a long time? There's been an issue in in Myanmar for a long time about people that are um, not considered citizens. Is that part of the? I, I think I read it as part of the Burma Convention that pretty much only, you know, it's very it's very hard for uh, a group like the Rohingya to get any kind of citizenship and has been for quite some time. Yeah, essentially, it kind of, it kind of goes back to what what the, what is called the 1982 citizenship law. Um, what that did was they, they made basically three tiers of citizens in Myanmar. Um, um, and, and the Rohingya do not fall into that category. Um, there's 135 recognized ethnic groups, and the Rohingya is not one. So there's this kind of narrative inside the country, this, you know, that, that these are the, you know, we have 135 groups, and these guys are not part of it, so therefore they don't belong. And it's, just, it's seen sort of in a black and white terms. Um, and that's yeah, and that's that's leading to you know when when you even when you you know very dear Myanmar friends of mine who I've had very wonderful conversations in the in the past about human rights and democracy, when it comes to this issue, they're like nope, no, they don't belong here. It's, it's different, and, and and that's the end of it. And it's quite it's quite surprising and, and often upsetting. Yeah, I bet. I bet it's it's a really harsh yeah. opinion to take. Um, mm. and sort of quite, un- yeah, yeah. I, I suppose, quite unusual <laughs> to. You know, it's, it's something as, as a British person we see far too often here, but I kind of don't expect it so much from other countries. It's a weird thing to say. Um, <laughs> but, um, yeah. you know, the, one of the one of the other the main uh, things that we've been hearing quite a lot about is the, the accusations against, uh, against Aung San Suu Kyi um, about how she's... Um, 
They're now saying that she's complicit in all of this. But I, I, I was... Now, this is my lack of knowledge here, but someone was explaining to me that because of the kind of basic military rules still of Myanmar, that she doesn't have as much power as we might assume that she does. Is that correct, or have I got that completely wrong? Yeah, it's, it's a little bit, a bit of both. So according to the... So even though when the elections happened here in 2015, her party won, the NLD being the National League for Democracy, won a resounding victory, um, and they won sort of... They dominate parliament. But the country is run according to the 2008 constitution, so that was established when the country was under military rule. And what that, that constitution essentially does was, one, it bans Aung San Suu Kyi from being president because she has foreign sons. So what she actually what they did was a very clever workaround was that they... So she put in, in, in place president of a, friend, a close friend of her, called Utin Shaw, and they, they, then they, they created this new role called the state councillor role. And that was, that was actually, um, I don't know if you remember, back in January, uh, a Muslim lawyer called Uko Ni was assassinated. A wonderful lawyer, wonderful man. Uh, he, he, that was actually kind of his, his idea to come up with this, this state, state councillor role. So she's, she is, a, you know, the term we use is the de facto leader of the country. But at the same time, as you mentioned, the military, the, that constitution protects military interests. And what that does is um, they, they, they guarantee 25% of all seats in parliament. Uh, because the NLD's uh, domination in the, in, the, in the election, that doesn't have as much impact as it might do otherwise. But the big thing is that they control uh, security in the country. So they, they control... Um, Three, three ministries, the most important one being the, being the Ministry of Home Affairs, and, and they, they control security. So the Tamador being the armed forces do not fall on Aung San Suu Kyi's remit. They're controlled by the Min Ong Lai, who's the commander-in-chief. So it's, it's, it's true that she does not have control of them. What a lot of the international community has been disappointed about is her, when, when they say that she's complicit, is her silence, her, in a, her uh, reluctance, should I say, to speak up on this issue. Um, and she's, you know, it, it took about a month or so for her to address this issue and talk about it publicly, but she's, she's refusing to speak out um, against, against the military, essentially. And there's probably a couple of reasons, I think, at play. Um, one is politically, the, the, the Rohingya are disliked in this country. If she was to speak um, up, up in their, their defense, she would lose a lot of political capital. And secondly, she, she knows for well the military do wield considerable power, and she has to keep that relationship in check. Uh, when she had the press conference with Rex Tillerson on, I think it was on Wednesday, uh, one of the questions raised was, you know, are you, you know, you've remained silent on, on this issue. And her, her retort to that was, I've not remained silent. I've just said, um, I've just not said what people want me to hear. And she, she's of the view that if she speaks up in defense of any community, it could lead to, to more violence and more, more tension between communities. That's a tricky position i mean i can see why people are angry but also i can see that that's not as easy a position as uh, some of the headlines might make out yeah i'd agree um it, it's not quite as, as black and white as it's sometimes been reported in the international press uh, and as you say i can see why people are disappointed in her um but at the end of the day the key to resolving this issue is is getting the military on the side um it's you know onto the, the, we see we read a lot of these reports of these these institutions in the uk and taking back awards that have been given to Aung San Suu Kyi, they're not going to make any difference at the end of the day. Uh, people can do it. It might make, make, make sort of these people feel, feel better about themselves, but that's not going to make the blind of a difference. Really, what the focus, if people want to, to bring an end to this situation, is focus on the military. And that's where that idea of targeted sanctions against certain figures in the military may work. It may not, of course, because Myanmar knows it has China on its side. Um, but focusing on this, this kind of anger towards Aung San Suu Kyi is counterproductive. And is there just, I mean, for, for um, uh, citizens of Myanmar, uh, sort of non-Rohingya people, is, 
you know, with the military having that much control uh, and power, has, is that kind of felt in society in general? Is that something that people, you know, feel... Um, does it feel like a democracy? Uh, it's difficult to know, really. I mean, I, I think the situation... I've been in Myanmar since, uh, what, 2012, I think I was. Um, and it's certainly... The, the country is freer than it was um, back in 2011, 2012. People, you know, the economy is much freer. Previously, you had, you know, the, the economy was only dominated by these kind of military-linked cronies or by um, or by military. And now, you know, you know, everyday people have the opportunity to start their own businesses. There's There's better freedom of... Um, you know, people can generally do what they want. They want speaking, but the, the military is is it does it lingers over everyday life. So they control. So these these ministries that they control, one of them being the Ministry of Home Affairs, that controls almost every ad administrative level. So they they they're kind of present in everyday life, um, and they're they're certainly still lingering around. Um, yeah, I guess. So in. Um just as a kind of last question, then really, we we, we realise this isn't going to get sorted out anytime soon. Unless there's some quite drastic action. You're talking about the possibility of military sanctions, but is is there anything um, listeners, people should be doing that can aid, that can help? Um, and also, is there anyone that you recommend people should, uh, you know, apart from yourself and apart from Frontier um, Myanmar? Is there anyone else that people should read up on or uh, follow online for more information? Yeah, I think what regards to what people can do, unfortunately, I've forgotten. There, is, there are a couple of organisations that are doing a lot of great work. Unfortunately, I've forgotten the name of them. Um, I mean, I think what people can do is, is offer support where, where they can. I mean, this, this, this issue, if they want to offer, you know, offer financial, uh, look, look closely at what some of the groups offering work and offer financial uh, assistance where they can. Uh, and I think it's just about understanding the complexities of the issue. So, as you say, sort of, there, there are a couple of, you know, some, some really wonderful journalists in this region have been covering it. And, you know, just talking generally about um, outlets to look out for, the likes of Reuters have done terrific stuff, BBC, New York Times, Reuters, uh, Al Jazeera. So those guys are, otherwise, I would say, sort of the credible ones to keep an eye on. Um, they've really done a good job of trying to understand the complete. You know, you know, the humanitarian story is, is absolutely the story here. But I, I've certainly seen some reports which are a little not quite understand the complexities and that's you know that's counterproductive i think in any way Thank you very much to Oliver for the chat. Uh, Myanmar is six and a half hours ahead of the UK, as I said, and you just would not believe how tricky that extra 30 minutes makes arranging a time to talk. I mean, why not just round it up to seven hours or down to six? Why would you... Why 30 minutes? God, I bet they miss a lot of telly. Anyway, Oliver is on Twitter at Oslo99, uh, spelled as it sounds, and Frontier Myanmar can be found at FrontierMM or FrontierMyanmar.net. And they have a site both in Burmese and English. Um, and Oliver Oliver asked me to tell you they also have a series of podcasts called Do Athan, that's D-O-H-A-T-H-A-N, uh, which translated means Our Voice. And the latest episode, episode five, has an English and Burmese edition and explains the current Rohingya refugee situation in even more depth than we have discussed. So do check that out. It's a very good listen. Uh, you can get all of that from your favourite pod places. So do check that out. Uh, also, a good charity campaign to check out if you do want to help um, is the Burma Campaign, who are on Twitter at Burma Campaign UK or online at burmacampaign.org.uk.
And as I've already mentioned on this week's show, because seriously, what would a podcast that looks at the comedy side of politics be if I didn't just tirelessly try to hammer home the same few points again and again and again? Um, if you have someone you would like me to interview from any side of the political spectrum or an issue you'd like me to talk to someone about, then please do let me know. And you can do that by messaging me on Twitter at Parpolbro, on the Partly Political Broadcast group on Facebook, or by email at partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com. Or, you know, write the message with your fingers on the back of dirty white vans, and when I'm next driving on the motorway, I should be able to read it. That is, if I'm not too busy swearing as they cut in front of me without indicating like they do every single time. Every time. Every single time. Yeah, just email me. It's much, much easier. And that is the end of this week's Partly Political Broadcast podcast. Uh, thank you very much for listening and please do donate to the Patreon or Ko-fi pages if you can. Please review the show on iTunes or Stitcher or PodButts or SoundWizard or Audio Bastard or any of your favourite pod places. And if you enjoy this show, please do spread the word as it's always lovely to get more listeners on board. If you don't enjoy this show, then well done for making it this far. But next time, why not just try listening to the recorded sounds of a wind tunnel instead? Thanks, as always, to Acast for hosting the show and to my brother, The Last Skeptic, for all of the musics. And this will be back next week when I'll be looking at the budget, trying to work out just how Philip Hammond has pushed for 0% growth with the aim that it'll boost the economy by millions. Bye! This week's show is brought to you by Philip Hammond's driverless cars. Seemingly no one at the wheel, but full security guaranteed. Except for EU citizens, jobs, the economy, the NHS, the housing...